looking with me to Ezra chapter 5. Ezra chapter 5. And uh, we'll continue uh, in our study of Ezra. Ezra chapter 5. And the question this morning is, have you ever been discouraged? Have you ever been discouraged? You say, well, that's like, are you human? Well, rare if non-existent is the person who's never been discouraged. Even many well-known successful people have struggled with discouragement. Now, why do we become discouraged? Well, sometimes discouraged stems from a physical cause. Uh, we simply are tired and we're worn out from working long and hard. And maybe we haven't taken the break we needed, but uh, sometimes we have physical causes for discouragement. You know, the older we get, and I can really say this because I'm getting older, and uh, uh, I'm getting to be an old man. I mean, uh, I know I don't look it, but uh, uh, I have aches and pains. And sometimes those aches and pains can be discouraging, can't they? Uh, some of you know what I'm talking about uh, when I talk about aches and pains or body uh, illnesses. Uh, uh, sometimes uh, uh, cancer and disease comes into a person's life, you know, even a Christian, and it can be discouraging. And so we become discouraged because of a physical reason. But another cause of discouragement is that we're sometimes too idealistic. Can you be too idealistic? Well, this is sometimes the hazard for a preacher like myself. Having been a pastor and a teacher almost all my adult life, I've strived to be a dedicated man of ideals. And my desire has been to achieve for the glory of God. Yet, no matter how hard I work and I pray, it seems these goals sometimes elude me. I think, well, why, why aren't there better results? You know, I work hard and, uh, you know, I can, well, maybe I'm too idealistic. I think of one pastor by the name of G. Campbell Morgan. No doubt you've heard that name, but he astounded his congregation at London's Westminster Chapel on the 10th anniversary of his ministry there by telling them he considered himself a failure. And yet he had rescued that church from almost certain failure and made it a focal point for evangelical Bible study in the entire English-speaking world. And then sometimes, coupled with this idealism, discouragement often comes from people that disappoint us. Sometimes people, believe it or not, people disappoint us, don't they? You know, we're counting on someone and they let us down. We had high hopes for a person who turned against us and they failed, or they failed spiritually or morally. Again, as a pastor, sometimes uh, uh, that can be a subject of disappointment for me when someone makes a good beginning in Christ and then they turn back to the world. That's discouraging. Or perhaps uh, 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 as a pastor, uh, discouraged, uh, or a pastor has discouraged you. Because he's failed you in some way. You know, it's not hard to hear the discouragement in Paul's lonely voice from prison when he said in 2 Timothy 4.10, For Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed unto Thessalonica. 
And so pastors are often the subjects of criticism and slander as well. And if I don't keep my focus on the Lord and labor for His well done, I can get discouraged. I think of Charles Spurgeon who began his ministry in London at the age of 20. He was barraged with criticism and, and the press, much of it from other ministers who were jealous of his success. I mean, he had 5,000 people come to hear him preach. Well, that could be discouraging. There's not 5,000 room for 5,000 in here anyway. But you know what? Uh, he had a lot of people come, and so he, he faced a lot of criticism. You know, there are some who wrote that they doubted his salvation. Others predicted that he would be like a rocket that would climb out high and then drop out of sight. And someone else asked proof for his that Spurgeon was the Lord's servant, that his ministry was heart-searching, Christ-exalting, and truth-unfolding, and sinner-converting, and church-feeding, and soul-saving. Well, if you just read the, the history of that man and his ministry you'll find that it was all that. But you know, another source of discouragement can be our disappointment with God. That's another cause of discouragement. Sometimes you've prayed and you've worked for something and it didn't happen. And as far as you can tell, it would have been for God's glory if it had been come out and come, come about, but it fell apart. You even claimed a promise from the Bible and you prayed and you worked and from your perspective, God didn't keep his promise. You began to wonder whether you should ever try that again with the Lord. And then I had, may I really uh, give you another source of discouragement that's closely related to this one. We can become discouraged by our own personal spiritual condition. And that, in turn, can be a source of discouragement for others as well. When we're not living for the Lord, it can cause us to be discouraged, but certainly can be causing, cause others to be discouraged as well when we're not living for the Lord. Often we're so self-centered, and it's not because God has failed us, but, but we have failed God and others with our selfish pride. And because what we think you know, we have all the answers and we have an attitude toward God and others that's obviously wrong. Of course, we're going to be dealing with that particular area in our study in Romans this afternoon. But you know what? People try to deal with spiritual discouragement in many wrong ways. Sometimes people plunge themselves into other things that they think will bring fulfillment, like entertainment or sports, or travel, or their careers. And tragically, some even turn to drugs, or alcohol, or adultery. And all these things only deep dig them deeper into discouragement. A few become so discouraged that they take their own lives. Well, in Ezra chapter 4, we read there last week, then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah and troubled them in building. They were discouraged. The work on rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem stopped for about 16 years. And according to what we read in, this, in our scripture reading this morning in Haggai chapter 1, the people's focus shifted to building their own houses. 
And they neglected the building of God's house. And if the subject came up, they responded, well, we tried that, but it didn't work. You know, you've heard that one before. We've tried it, but it didn't work. Well, how could this dismal situation be reversed? How could the Lord's people put their discouragement behind them so that they could finish the task of rebuilding the temple? Well, to turn things around, the Lord raised two prophets. One of them was Haggai, who we read earlier. And the other one was Zechariah, who spoke to the people in the name of God of Israel, as we find here in chapter 5 and verse 1. And under the renewed leadership of Zerubbabel and Jeshua, or Joshua, the people began to rebuild, and in spite of further opposition, the work was finished in a little over four years. And so our text this morning gives us some clues on how to overcome discouragement in our work for the Lord. To overcome discouragement, we need a fresh encounter with God's Word. We need to get back to work for Him and to persevere, trusting Him to accomplish His will through us. Now, let's look at chapter 5 here. Then the prophets Haggai and the prophet Zechariah, the son of Idu, prophesied, unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel, even unto them. Then rose up Zerubbabel and the son of Sheatiel and Jeshua the son of Josedach, and began to build the house of God which is at Jerusalem, and with them were the prophets of God helping them. And at the same time to them Tatnai, governor on this uh, this side of the river, and uh, Shetharbozani, And their companions said unto them, Who hath commanded you to build this house and to make up this wall? Then said we unto them, After this manner, What are the names of the men that make this building? But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, that they could not cause them to cease till the matter came to Darius. And they came, and and then they returned, answered by letter concerning this matter. And the copy of the letter that Tatnai, governor on this side of the river, and Shethar Bozani, and his companions at Afar Saxite, uh, which were on this side of the river, sent unto Darius the king. They sent a letter unto him, wherein was written thus, unto Darius the king, all peace. Be it known unto the king that we went into the province of Judea to the house of the great God, which is built with the great stones and timber is laid in the walls, and this work goeth fast on and prospereth in their hands. Then asked we those elders and said unto them, Thus, who commanded to build this house and to make up these walls? We asked their names also to certify thee, that we might write the names of the men that were the chief of them. And thus they returned us answer, saying, We are the servants of God of heaven and earth, and build the house that was builded these many years ago, which a great king of Israel built it and set up. But after that our fathers were provoked, the God of heaven and the wrath we gave unto the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and the Chaldean, who destroyed this house and carried the people away into Babylon. And in the first year of Cyrus, the king of Babylon, the same king Cyrus made a decree to build this house of God. And the vessels also of gold and silver of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that was in Jerusalem and brought them into the temple of Babylon, those did Cyrus king take out of the temple of Babylon, and they were delivered unto one whose name was Shelzbazar, whom he had made governor. 
And he said unto them, Take these vessels, go, carry them into the temple that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be builded in this place. And then came the same Shelzbazar, and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And since that time, even until now, hath it been in building, and yet it is not finished. Now therefore... It seemed good to the king, let there be a search made in the king's treasure house, which is there at Babylon, where, whether it be so, that a decree was made of Cyrus the king to build the house of God in Jerusalem, and let the king send his pleasure to us concerning this matter. A little extended uh, reading of the scripture, but I think it's important for us to see uh, how to overcome discouragement. And the first thing we need to do is to have a fresh encounter with God's word. We need to have a fresh encounter with God's word. Like every spiritual advance from Abraham to the missionary expansion in Acts, this venture began with the word of the Lord. And in common with the rest, it was quickly tested and threatened. The Old Testament prophets did not so much as expound on God's already written word. Rather, they received even new revelation directly from God for his people at this time. And when these prophets spoke, the Jewish people realized that God was speaking through these men. Now, we no longer have prophets prophets to have uh, to receive direct revelation from God. But in this case, we have the heart of the prophet's message preserved for us in the Old Testament canon. And when we are discouraged, the thing that will refresh us is to hear God speaking to us in a particular circumstance through his word. And although some will testify that, you know, well, if I just take the Bible... You know, the old open the Bible at random and uh, see what God has for me. Let's see that. Is that it for today? You know, some say, well, that, that's worked for me. I don't recommend it. I recommend reading the Word of God consecutively and systematically. I've often found that the passage of the day was does even have a particular relevance to the very circumstances I'm going through at the time. Yes, even some of the Old Testament books that are hard to read. But there are a number of ways you can have a fresh encounter with the Word of God. But in every case, you must have exposure to the Word. In other words, it won't happen if you never open your Bible. You'll never have an encounter with God's Word if you don't open it. And it won't happen if you don't avail yourself to the preaching and teaching of God's Word as well. When you are discouraged, you may not feel like getting into the Word of God. But you must go against your feelings, if need be, and expose yourself to His Word. You can listen to the Bible on tape or CD or whatever means you have. You may even need to schedule a special time on a day off to take your Bible and just get alone with God and, and read some, uh, uh, some expanded uh, readings in the Scripture. But God speaks to us through His Word. And we must take the time and the effort to expose ourselves to it. And when you do, God's Word will do at least four things. Number one, God's word confronts our sin. 
God's word confronts our sin. This is the main thrust of that passage there in Haggai. He directly confronted the people with their sin of building their own houses while neglecting God's house. And God used Haggai to stir up Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people so that they, as it said in verse 14, they came and did work in the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. Now you may be thinking, well, when I'm discouraged, why would I want to be confronted by my sin? That would be just even more discouraging, wouldn't it? It may not be pleasant at the moment, but you know what? When the Word of God confronts us with our sin, it's the medicine that we need. Sin will destroy us, and it will damage us. And not only destroy us and damage us, but it will destroy and damage those who are close to us. To neglect the Bible because it confronts our sin is like avoiding the doctor when we, have, we know that we have cancer. Now, it may not be a pleasant thing to go through the treatment, but without it, we will die. The Bible says to us, all Scripture is profitable. It's profitable for reproof and instruction. God's Word will confront us with our sin. Secondly, God's Word confirms His grace. While Haggai confronted the people's sin, Zechariah gave them hope that God would remember them and keep his covenant promises to send the Messiah. Now, Zechariah's name means whom the Lord remembers. His father was uh, Barakiah, which means the Lord blesses. His grandfather, was also mentioned here in chapter 5 and verse 1, was Idu. How'd you like that for a name? think some of these other names are strange. You know, I don't know if I've heard anybody calling their children Idu. They've called them a lot of other things, but they haven't called them Idu. But you know what that means? Idu means at the appointed time. So you put these three names together, the fathers, the grandfathers, or the, uh, 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 Zachariah and his father and his grandfather, you put the three names together, and it comes out, whom the Lord remembers, he blesses at the appointed time. Oh, names mean something, don't they? They certainly do in God's word. And although Zechariah was the prophet of hope and encouragement, he began his message by talking about God's fierce wrath because of his people's sins. But immediately he follows it with the Lord's gracious invitation. And he says there in Zechariah 1 and verse 3, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. If we will repent, God will be gracious to us. This is illustrated here in our text in chapter 5, verse 1. It's a new, new beginning. We've talked about new beginnings and starting over already in us in this study here, but the first new beginning was in chapter 3 when the returned exiles gathered in Jerusalem and they set up the altar and they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles and they laid the foundation of the temple and then the opposition came and it discouraged them and it frightened them and resulted in 16 years of doing nothing about the temple. But now we have a second new beginning, a new, new beginning. 
Thank God that he allows us for new, new beginnings. And new, new, new beginnings, if you please. How many times have you started over? How many times have you gotten away from the Lord and said, you know, I need to get back to the Lord and I need to get started again. And you go for a while and you get away from the Lord and you come back to the Lord. That's the way Israel was. But was God gracious to them? He confirmed his grace and he did it through his word. Number three, God's word changes our priorities. These two prophets spoke in the name of God of Israel, even unto them, says here in chapter one or five, verse one. Now the word them there at the end is kind of ambiguous, isn't it? Who is them? Uh, it could and certainly does refer to the prophets who were under God's lordship, but it also refers to the people who were chose God's chosen nation. Haggai exhorted them to get their priorities in order by putting God's house first. Wherever we turn in God's word, it confronts us about our skewed priorities. We're all prone to let the things of this world crowd out the things of God. And the word keeps calling us back to the basic priority. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. God's word will change your priorities. Fourthly, God's word certifies how to live. Without the word from these two prophets, most of the Jews back in the land probably thought, well, hey, we're doing okay. They may have congratulated themselves for giving their up their comfortable lives in Babylon. You know, we, we were making it pretty good there back in Babylon. Now we've come back here and everything's a mess and we've got to start building over. It was a long, it was a dangerous journey that we had to make. Wow, I really did a good job, didn't I? As they pat themselves on the back. Perhaps they thought, sure, oh, we don't have the temple yet, but, you know, these things take time. The Jews back in Babylon, they didn't have a temple either. We're better off than they are. At least we came back to the land. But then the prophets spoke and the people realized that to please God, they needed to commit themselves to rebuild this temple. You know, it's easy sometimes to think, you know, we're doing okay. Because we're comparing ourselves with other Christians. And we say, hey, you know, I'm doing better than so-and-so. I'm doing better than that guy. You know, he's way off the deep end, and I'm, I'm doing pretty good, aren't I? We always seem to compare ourselves to those who aren't quite committed to, uh, uh, to the Lord uh, as we see ourselves. But then we come to the Word of God, and it exposes the thoughts and the intents of the heart, doesn't it? The Bible, the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, to the thoughts and intents of the heart. That's what the Word of God does. And yes, it can be painful because it's cuts. But we need that. We realize that God wants purity in our lives, in our thought life, in the things that we say, in the things that we... Uh, relationships we have. He calls us to love Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. 
And you learn that Christ loves the church and he gave himself for her, but you don't, you don't love his church like he does, do you? So the Word of God shows us how we need to adjust our thinking. We need to adjust our priorities. We need to adjust our behavior to please God. And to overcome discouragement, we need a fresh encounter with God's Word. And then to overcome discouragement, we need to get back to work for the Lord. Discouragement had led the people to abandon the work on the temple for 16 years. And these prophets were calling them back to work. There's something encouraging about serving the Lord, especially if you've been on the sidelines for a while. There's encouragement that he can even use me in spite of my previous failures. Now, whether it's a physical labor or being used spiritually in someone's life, there's joy in knowing that you're laboring for God's eternal kingdom and that someday you'll hear him say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You know, one cause of discouragement is that we become so self-focused. Often that self-focus generates self-pity and self-justification for why we quit serving the Lord. As I sang in that little song that I sang earlier about Elijah, he began to say, and he said unto them, I have been very jealous for the Lord of God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left and seek my life to take it away. Oh, poor Elijah. Poor us. We think sometimes we're the only ones. That kind of self-focus prevents us from seeing the needs of others and ministering to those needs. I've often said that when you get discouraged and you get worried about your own troubles and your own trials, you need to ask or seek to help someone else that may be going through difficulty. And by ministering to others, it helps you take your mind off your discouragements and your trials. Encouraging someone else who is discouraged can encourage you as well. I wonder this morning, what is your ministry? What is your ministry? You say, what did you say? I said, what is your ministry? You may not have a ministry and you've never thought of it in that sense. You never thought about my ministry. Listen, I would be depressed too if I didn't have a ministry. (laughs) If I just sat around thinking about my problems. We need to find someone to help. Now it could be here in the church. It doesn't have to be. But it will do wonders for you in your discouragement. Get back to work for the Lord. To overcome discouragement, we need to persevere in the face of opposition. We saw this last week. The enemy would not be idle when we make a new beginning for the Lord. There's going to be some opposition when we start over for the Lord. No sooner had the people begun to build here, and it tells us about Tetnei, the governor over Israel, and his sidekick and their colleagues. They come and they challenge him in verse 3. And in their defense, they were only doing their job. 
They reported to the king Darius, who began to reign with a number of challenges to his rule, and these men were making sure that the Jews were not plotting a rebellion against the king. But even so, the enemy was using them to threaten the people to abandon the work again. But in this case, they did not demand that the work stop until the word came from the king. Rather, they permitted the people to continue building until such a word came which would take them four or five months. And the reason is, it says in verse 5, the eye of their, of their God was on the elders of the Jews. The eye of the enemy and the eye of God are continually on us in all the work of life. you got two eyes watching you today. you got the eye of God and you got the eye of the enemy. And knowing that the eye of God is upon us, we can persevere even when the enemy is watching and trying to get us to quit. Now, here it tells us that Tatnai sent a letter to Darius. And our text includes this. It quotes this. It reveals several interesting things. One, For one, it's surprisingly accurate. Unlike the letter that you had back in chapter 4, which was a distortion of the truth, to make the Jews look worse than they were, this letter actually states the facts. It asks for verification. And I don't know whether the governor assumed that the Jews' story was so far from the truth that the king would easily disprove it, or whether he was a man of integrity who was just doing his job. But it states here the Jews' claims were accurate, and the king uh, they asked the king to confirm and to, or to deny those claims. And also, the letter shows that the Jews gave a strong testimony to Tatnai, as well as to his colleagues. They gave a testimony of God and his ways. Uh, they let them know that they were servants of God. I wonder, are we ashamed to admit that we're a Christian? Do we give a good testimony to those that we come in contact with in this world? Here they give a good testimony. They're servants of God. Verse 11. Uh, they gave a brief history of Israel. They, uh, that formerly they had worshipped at the temple with the great king of Israel that, that, uh, that Sol- Solomon had built. Because of their sin, God had given the nation over to the land of Nebuchadnezzar. They admitted they were sinful. And he had destroyed the temple and deported the people to Babylon. But King Cyrus had issued a decree to the Jews in return to rebuild the temple. And he'd even restored the gold and the silver there that had been entrusted to them. Perhaps the Jews even showed the utensils to Tatnai as proof. But the point is this. The Jews had given Tatnai and his colleagues a strong witness about God and his faithfulness to his people. And there is an application here for us in overcoming discouragement. One way to overcome discouragement is to persevere in the face of opposition, and it's to give a strong witness of our faith in Jesus Christ. That commits us so that we know others will be watching us. You say, you know, if I am at work and I, uh, I admit to someone that I'm a Christian, and th- well, then they're going to be watching me, aren't they? Yes. Because they're watching you anyway, and God's watching you. If we're bold for the Lord, we can know that His eye is upon us in whatever response our enemies 
come back with. So the first thing we need to overcome discouragement is a fresh encounter with the Word of God. And if our discouragement has caused us to quit, we need to get back to work for Him. And then we need to persevere when opposition hits, as it will, knowing that His eye is upon us. And then finally, we need to trust God to accomplish His will. Trust God to accomplish His will. Behind these events of the renewal of God's people, God was sovereignly at work. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah constantly uh, talk about God's providence in the life of His people. And the reestablishment of this covenant community was the result of continuing series of God's providential acts. The fact that the governor allowed the work on this temple to continue while inquiry was sent to Darius was due to God's eye upon his people. And in order to fulfill his purpose, God used and coordinated the preaching of the prophets and the work of the leaders and the determination of the whole community and the decisions of even a pagan government. It's also obvious that the Jews saw God's sovereign dealings with them in history. And this knowledge, or this knowledge enabled them to put the current opposition in proper perspective. They went back to the beginning with certainty. They traced the whole providential line most distinctly and vividly, and thus they, keeping memory and imagination in touch with the facts, they were able to rely on the proof of the divine election and rule in their life. Now along the same lines, the Christian faith is tied to the fact that God made promises and fulfilled them in history. It was exemplified by Jesus who actually came, he died, and he rose again. And although God is sovereign, decisions we make do affect history. But as Paul said, Wherefore, my beloved, as ye have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. You know, we can know that as we work for the Lord, we're working in harmony with the sovereign God who is working out His purposes in history through His people. Now we'll see next week, the Lord willing, the temple was completed in a little over 70 years after its destruction. And there's great joy as they return, exiles gather to celebrate the Passover. And we'll read there in chapter 6 and verse 22, For the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them to strengthen their hands to the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. And so when our discouragement is turned to encouragement, it's because of God and his working. He should get all the glory. Now, if I'm going to modernize this a little bit, someone once said, and I guess it's kind of a legend, that the devil had a garage sale. And he marked all his tools with the appropriate price. He had hatred and envy and lust and deceit and lying and pride. He laid them all these and was rather harmless looking, but well-worn tool that was marked a higher price away from the rest. 
And the buyer points to it and says, what is that tool? And the devil replied, that's discouragement. Well, why is it priced so high? The man asked, because it's more useful to me than all the others. I can pry into a man's heart with that when I don't have to, I don't have to even get near him with the other tools. And once inside, I can make him do whatever I choose. It's badly worn because I use it almost on everyone. But few know that it belongs to me. See, the devil's price was so high that the tool discouragement was never sold. And he still uses it today. He uses it on God's people. He may be using it on your life. By God's grace, through his word, we can overcome discouragement. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 58, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Again, the first thing we need to overcome discouragement is a fresh encounter with God's word. And if our discouragement has caused us to quit, we need to get back to work for him. We need to persevere when opposition hits as it will, knowing that it his eye is upon us. And we must trust God to accomplish his will through us. Let's pray.